Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Raf. What's going on? Uh, as I explained to you earlier, I'm exhausted from travel, but we're not talking about travel today. <laughs> <laughs> but we can talk about your state of mind. My state of mind. Yeah, I feel like this is becoming the therapy podcast for Jeremy. Yeah. Jeremy Jeremy's existential crisis as an artist. Jeremy kind of rhymes with therapy <laughs> in some way. Yeah, yeah. I just got back from a trip to Oregon. I'm traveling every week this month, and uh, that can have its toll because I'm bouncing between Europe and the West Coast it's, of North America. It sounds so funny. <laughs> when it's like going to psychoanalysis. Yes, yeah, so I keep traveling and people keep offering me things and I just don't oh, right. know. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. It's really yeah, hard. Maybe this whole famous new media artist thing wasn't really it was cracked up. And to now me. that I have what I want, it's actually not that great. I miss <laughs> the days when I was stuck at home. Yeah. Yeah. Is no, it I, is it hard to say no? You know what? It's like it's tremendous, like privilege. That's what that's what every Hollywood actor says as well. No, I think like you can't complain because it's always really inspiring. I, and so today, I think you know we wanted to talk about it, the artist studio. I think, yeah. And I just got back from doing studio visits, and that is actually like, I mean, just like if you feel so lucky every time you, you do a studio visit. Can you explain uh, how the studio visits came about? Was it through an institution or a school or? just individuals yeah so um as most studio visits yeah studio visits of all if i if you're attending a studio visit it's different than receiving so this is me giving you know someone a but, studio but visit. were you asked by a festival to see a no no students, yeah or? no i was just asked by a school which happens a f- yeah a few times a year i usually get invited to speak in schools um like universities or art programs and and usually i'll insist or you know make myself available Um, to do studio visits because can we, can we explain for non-artists uh, and uh, you know because we have such a large audience yeah yeah um yeah. can we can we explain <laughs> what what the studio visit is because i i don't think people understand it's a it's a holy ritual mm. in the art world right yeah it is a holy ritual and it's funny too because <laughs> you're right it's a bit of a performance but i mean the basic premise the layman's description of a studio visit is You and you, you know, you make your work somewhere in some kind of place, and then you invite someone uh, to come to that place. Yeah, and and it co- it comes from the traditional way of art making, where you made visual art in a place that you needed space, so that that's where the magic happened, and you could really see the process in materials laid out in a studio. That that's the exciting thing. That yeah, there are materials scattered around everywhere. There are unfinished works, and you're in the middle of someone's yeah and usually you're the you're the person's sharing not completed works with you which is so it's yeah. like going to the factory and like seeing how they make crayons or something like that right mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're like oh well why did you do this like why do you make them that way or why did you know and so you get to have this conversation in process as opposed to the exhibition where everything's finished and uh, yeah that's the complete opposite yeah yeah and so Yeah, I think that's quite unique because, uh, I mean, in design, so I work, you know, obviously I've mentioned before as a design director, and sometimes we'll invite people in to see how we work, but I'm kind of just pointing <laughs> at like abstract areas, like this is the programming area. Or, Though, this that feels is, good, this yeah. feels good, yeah. Yeah, it's more like it's more like you're touring a showroom, um, but an art, you know, a studio visit, an artist studio visit is really kind of, It can sometimes it's quite it's quite a vulnerable position to be in as an artist, and also it's like you get to see a lot of well in it. Let's just say maybe this is a good segue into like all of the different kinds of studios that might exist. But if it's a painter or something, you know, you know, traditionally they might have like sketches kind of laid out or like half finished paintings and 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 then there's a romantic idea that the mistakes are the most interesting, and someone comes in and. They're showing you all the finished works and like, wait a minute, what's this on the floor? This <laughs> yeah, is a revolutionary right. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because like, uh, you know, famously, was it like Picasso or something had like more good works in the garbage than he had on the wall or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I have to say on this particular occasion, uh, yeah, it was like these are students. So these are MFAs. Um, and so you're doing your master's in fine art. And, and, and which uh, school invited you? It was in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, so the University of Oregon at Eugene, I think that's the right. There's always like a different way of uh, announcing a school. But anyway, it's a, a school in Eugene, Oregon, which is mostly a sports school. I didn't realize that. Uh, I always thought Oregon, you know, kind of like 
uh, granola bars and hiking and nature. But it's like Nike is also... Yeah, yeah. You uh, develop the there. muscles in the, in the nature. Yeah, so it was kind of funny because their studios were in what they referred to uh, kind of politically incorrectly as a shanty town. <laughs> but in, it, it was in... Con- a, we call it a whorehouse. <laughs> well, it was in contrast. Uh, they were Their studios were on all these old temporary structures from the 1960s, and they were supposed to tear down, but they never did, and so they put the artists in there. And then... Like, <laughs> That's the first step of gentrification. Yeah, but meanwhile, like there is like just they were about to tear a bunch of them down to build a new athletic facility that was going to be like four billion dollars. And I asked, like, well, where are they moving the artist studios? They're like, we don't know. We think we're just going to cut the number of <laughs> positions available. <laughs> and apparently, it cost like one one hundredth of a of a percent like less to for per square foot of artist space. Yeah, well, it 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 sounds uh, sometimes it sounds manipulative or evil, but it's just very logical. Like you. There's a part of town that's run down that used to be industrial. Mm. The amount of uh, units needed, of apartment units, is big. People don't have large families. There's a lot of people living by themselves. So these factories, you could convert them to small apartments. Okay, makes sense. But it's risky. We don't know if this neighborhood's going to work. So who would inhabit a decrepit building? Who would need <laughs> re- really cheap rent and is okay with a little bit of danger? Oh, artists, because they mess up the space anyway so they don't want a pristine studio that they would have to pay back the deposit if there's paint on the walls so the first people that move in are the sculptors then the painters then it's illustrators and designers then it's architecture firms right things get a little cleaned up then ad agencies (laughs) move in and then finally it's uh, residential well it seems like finally it's like um um like college athletes or pro sports athletes but you know it's funny about that i went to the nike center that they had like they had a separate one that was like seriously looked like something out of like a a sci-fi movie um like it was infinity pool surrounded the whole building and then it was just like pure glass and get this rep there were no handles on the doors into the building so they (laughs) So you have to press a button and then the and the door like obviously opens like but it's this like yeah and a female voice greeted you and it, yeah, it already it, knew your name <laughs> hi jeremy we've been waiting for you well it was all like l- yellow leather sofas and then they had like you know if you know those really douchey fireplaces that are like it's like in the middle of the room the 360 it's not against, fireplace yeah, yeah where it's with like a hanging thing above it yes yeah. yes exactly yeah. they had like students all around one of those and yeah you were living the life but it was so clean. There's no athletics going on in it, but it was like a VIP kind of spa center for these athletes. Mm. And, you know, um, I can't, you know, be too critical of that, but there's a separate, like, critique among academics or in the United States. And this is a American phenomenon around sports and money in, in schools. Anyway, it's a bit of a sidetrack from the artist studio, but the athlete studio, I can, I can tell you, <laughs> is a luxury. <laughs> it's like a luxury spa. Yeah. So, but the artist studio, yeah, it's just this like bare concrete. And, that, and I remember I built a studio at work for the designers and uh, in, ta- in consultation with the architect. And when I was ta- talking to like management about it, I was like, yeah, I just need it to be like a raw space, raw space. Just give me the raw well, space. Well, I, 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 I know people that uh, my wife was working. She's an art director. She was working at a company and the boss was so busy with making the space perfect that they couldn't hang any ideas on the wall because the tape would ruin the wall <laughs> right so you do need a space where you can mess things up no i mean i think i always question whether any other kind of space is necessary <laughs> you know because well i'm different but uh, i think in general because i work with the computer so then I, mm. I like to be comfortable i like the space to be well heated and uh, mm-hmm. not have mold and all that stuff but for most artists the 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 messier the better yeah yeah i mean my space i've just recently started so my studio is a home studio just like like yours is and and mostly it's on my laptop but every once in a while well quite often i'm performing as well in this space but i think of my domestic space being in the video as part of the work right um and i made that as like a conceptual decision well, that's, yeah I, I but that's to me the interesting thing where um the, the traditional studio is like this idea of Picasso and he buys up an old house and spends two years there and after two years it's just filled with stuff that he mm-hmm. made. Yeah. That's the classic, that's the, the dream scenario. But now the scenario is that uh, the computer is at the same time 
an entertainment device, it's an education device, it's a financial instrument, it's a shopping, and it's also an accidental artist studio, even for a lot of people who don't call themselves artists. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a machine that is both for content creation and consumption, and there's a big s- slider between people who almost exclusively consume information, and then there's people who almost exclusively produce, and everything in between. Right. So that makes the artist studio a very um, uh, fluid idea now. I, I yeah. Well, it's a al- it's alive though. I think in the art school and among certain artistic practices that are non digital. But in the art school, it's it was yeah, it was like I was jealous for a second. Let me put it that way because some of these studios, these were pretty large artist studios because they're not. It's not New York. I think in New mm-hmm. York, it's pretty common at art schools to be like in basically a broom closet, and they call that a yeah, studio. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. But here it was like these were pretty big and these temporary facilities or so called shanty towns actually were really kind of luxurious in size. And that was the first thing I remarked on. And then the second thing was they were very messy. And in a mm. way that I was just like, you know, excited about in that classic sense. Whereas like and these were kind of mixed media people. I mean, some of them were painters, but the painters that I visited with weren't only doing paintings. Some of them were sculptors, but they were making video. And I, you know, that's how art artists you know for, for me it was for funny when I when I started in art school first I looked around and we had to choose you have to choose which department you want to start at so I yeah. looked around and I saw the sculpting painting department and it was so messy there's a thing in paint that if you mix too many colors it's always this kind of gray purple brown right yeah that brown and thing. every everything looked like that it just looked like no decision. That's basically what it looked like to me. Just like, oh, whatever, <laughs> just like stuff, stuff, stuff. And and then the moving image department was all these pristine editing suites and computers and everything was yeah. clean and the colors were bright. And I was like, this is where I should be. Well, actually, it's interesting because usually schools are, are set up in a way that they, for media, that they kind of like uh, reject experimentation. So... To, mm. to, like the, there's one way yeah, that you they learn do the that. proper it's, way yeah this yeah, is how you yeah, play your it, great colors <laughs> and it's the opposite in sculpture and painting but like one of the worst examples of that in most media schools is this idea of a cage they call it a cage and a ca- in a cage is all of the fancy equipment right all of the things mm. that you can lend out um, and usually they'll have like weird requirements like you can only have it for 18 hours and <laughs> you have oh, to sign yeah, it out a in time advance table. And, yeah for sure <clears throat> yeah, and I was I was talking to one of the students well, about this yeah, during a the, studio in visit. the media space. You never it's never your machine. You're always sharing. Mm-hmm. That, so it's not your studio. You're renting the editing. Yeah, for exactly. One or two days, and I think it comes from that. But what ends up happening is that the no one ever uses this stuff. Like I was talking to a student uh, that was making some videos, and he was a sculptor. And I was like, "Yeah, do you ever get equipment out of the cage?" He's like, "No, because it's like 24 hours that you get it for, and it's just like you can't really." you know, have an impromptu idea. It doesn't really allow for experimentation or just well, like... Also yeah. nowadays, I think a lot of people have so much equipment themselves that the idea of the cage was kind of a 90s thing when video editing computers were really expensive. Yeah. And yeah. now you could basically edit things on your phone and definitely on a laptop. So I think the need for the cage is uh, very different yeah. now. Yeah. But I, I so the, there was also an open studios kind of thing happening. Um and so people were touring, you know, you know, when they invite the, well, maybe, I mean, you know, but maybe others don't know that sometimes artist studios, even like outside of schools will have an open studios day, right? Yeah. So they Which invite like a, an impromptu exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, but it's a mix. It's like a hybrid thing, you know, and the artists can choose to clean things up or not. And in this case, I think no one decided to do anything. There was no cleaning <laughs> going on. In fact, yeah. one guy I met with, he just like messed it up even more. And, you know, it's really interesting because I think they were trying to evoke that process, uh, kind of romantic uh, ideal that we were just talking about, of like letting the public into the chaos kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I, I do think there's something about so everything I make, I make with third parties. So I, I make websites and I work with a programmer. So mm-hmm. when the moment that the work really happens, I'm not there. I make sketches. And then I make tapestries. I work with a company that weaves, so I define the colors with them. But the moment that it happens, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, lenticulars, they happen in a factory. 
etc., etc. But the the idea is that this the artist studio, the artist is there the moment that it happens. Which maybe for you with your videos and your performance, you're always there at the moment that it happens. Um, yeah. Well, I, here's the question I have for you: is so that's one part of the artist studio is like seeing the work in process and someone spotting a happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part, and a big part, is inter- intervening in thinking. So ha- having a conversation while thoughts are still developing. And I think yeah. in, an, in an era where a lot of artists are mostly working on conceptual projects, the, these kinds of conversations are interesting to have yeah. while, while they're being processed. Do you, uh, do you change your work a lot according to conversations? Well, yeah, that was my question for you, actually. It was like whether you're doing, whether you're having conversations and whether you're calling them studio visits or not, but while you're making work. I have, a, I, I think I'm a, a weird case where I have very few studio visits, maybe one or two per year. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly, most of the time when I work with people, they know my work from the internet, they send me an email and they're like, hey, do you want to do something? Yeah. And sure. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe Instagram functions as the open studio where people will see half finished things and mm-hmm. but, but I, I I'm I, yeah. I'm very uh I I change my mind according to the technology. So if I'm trying to do something with textile and it turns out what I wanted was not possible but something else is cooler than I imagined, mm-hmm. then I'll go with that. But there's not so much uh, process where I let people decide on the work itself or Right. Well I guess I was I was thinking like sometimes, well, I guess my process, I often have conversations with people and then those conversations kind of lead to new work. And yeah. so it'll be like, they're not coming in the middle, but I'll I'll have them at the front. Like I start every project Even talking. with performance? <clears throat> I, well, I started about five years ago. I adopted the same processes I use in design uh, for art making. And there's a process of design thinking where you start every project with empathy. Um, okay. And 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 for for that process to work, you really have to have this kind of open mind. Uh, and so, if I'm working on a commission, and that's most often how I work, right? It'll be like someone comes to me and asks me to do something. Um, I'll insist that I, you know, talk to them for. And and, and this conversation takes place over Skype or at a yeah. restaurant or in a because st- the classic co- place for a conversation would be the studio. Yeah, exactly. And so that doesn't happen. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, I don't invite anyone over here. Um, but Well, nobody uh, wants to come to Toronto. Yeah, no one wants to come here. I, uh, free airfares. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. You should, start a, you should start an airline just so people will come to Toronto. <laughs> it could be called Studio it Visit Airlines. Like no security checks. Like, it's the best airline in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I've got it all figured out. There's no friction. You just like, you know, you'll, we'll actually pick you up while you're sleeping. And when you wake up, you'll be in my apartment. It'll be warm. Trust me, we have heating. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think um, I usually do it by Skype, but I've recently been insisting on it, and this is why I bring it up, insisting on doing, it's like a reverse studio visit. So if I get commissioned to a project, I insist on traveling to where the project will exist Mm -hmm. to meet with the curator or with the institutional partner um, and so that I get some idea of the context. So like I'm doing a project in Norway later this year. Last year, I went for a week just for research. And I think this is actually common among uh, artists as they go on in their careers, but not not, not very many re- people really talk about it in relation to the studio visit, but it's kind of like a reverse studio visit. Yeah. Which is this like, yeah. kind of... Well, it, but that's, uh, I think it started in the 90s, This, or maybe before, this post-studio practice where mm-hmm. the work happens in the exhibition space. It's, that's right. The, the classic format is that you make works and the exhibition space doesn't relate to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just try to fit them in the exhibition space. But then slowly but steady, installation art and relational aesthetics and things like this, you adapt the work and the exhibition is the work. So yeah, and then, I, of course, the, the exhibition space, the gallery or the museum becomes the studio. Yeah, and you know, for a long time I've, I've sort of had my career tied to that kind of practice, specifically relational aesthetic practices from the 90s. And I, I mean, for me, when I was in school, though, too, even, they were, ins- they were sort of insisting on you know, context is everything. Um, and so, yeah, but it's really interesting to then go do these studio visits and you realize uh, these are students too, right? So you know, it took mm-hmm. me back to when I was a student and you're kind of making things for yourself 
in your own space. Like it's like it's, it's very a, individual. It's very pure. Yeah, I mean that's why it was so inspiring. But also I was I said I was jealous because it's like I haven't had that like that kind of intense period of self indulgence, <laughs> self focus. That's <laughs> so all long. the stupid empathy that got in your head. Yeah, well, like I think everyone is after school forced out, you know, after that like micro moment, maybe, maybe not everyone, maybe there are studio practices that don't exist this way, because you were just saying like, you kind of come up with stuff and then people find you and you're mm-hmm. like, can I show that? But me, I mean, at least my, you, because I think also I'm a performer, I really, um, and I'm always operating in reaction to something as a flexist would, like I'm sort of like, creating happenings i really need to understand the place that it's going to be and so uh, you couldn't you you, you couldn't uh, have um, let's say that you have you're, you're researching a problem in a performance so mm-hmm. let's say that you're researching the way people respond to very high-pitched noises at weird uh, intervals mm-hmm. and then you could try that same idea in different cultures in different places or i see you want to research a problem specifically to the place what happens more often is that by creating something for a specific place, you find out something universal about other places. Yeah. So I've created but, but stuff for... Yeah. Is, is there any need for you to have a rehearsal space that would then be the studio? It just doesn't make any sense because the rehearsal space is not uh, representative of the actual context. So it'd be like rehearsing... So you would have to hire... Your studio would be... You, you would have to have uh, <laughs> extras that... The pretend to be an audience. You know, that would be funny. You would rehearse with a hundred volunteers. That would be like Liberace or something. I'd invite <laughs> hundreds of people to my mansion, <laughs> and I want to show you. I want to do a dress rehearsal for you. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> it's going to be marvelous. Uh, no, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I hadn't. It the contrast didn't occur to me until I got back from because I I do studio visits from time to time and. I, I, every once, probably like you, once or twice a year, I have someone over here, but it's more like we have coffee or tea together. That's what I consider a studio yeah. visit. Yeah, I just think for me, the studio visit is difficult because uh, there's, uh, I, I could set up a space with works, but it's a showroom, it's mm-hmm. not a studio. So, the, you know, it, they could look at my laptop, and I think unfinished files on a computer just look like bad work they don't well, look like unfinished files i mean Corey archangel was great at um at that when he would i think when he sold a work he would also give you all the files from the folder you know mm-hmm. and all of my projects actually exist as folders right it'll be like every yeah. time i have a well, show that, that's the so that's the interesting thing to me that's more that's more real this idea of the, the studio and the messy place is it's valid for some people but i really think where culture is at is um, folders. That's mm-hmm. how things happen. And this idea, this idea of uh, but that's like if the artist studio was a filing cabinet. It was like you went into Picasso's studio and you're like, "Show me the filing cabinet. Let me rifle through those documents." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is non-alphabetic. I'm very <laughs> yeah. Can I sort this by date? Yeah. No, I but I, I I think in New York it's very heavy on this sort of studio art. It's uh, mm-hmm. the, all the art you see. It's all about the feeling of the material and mm-hmm. and oh, I I tried all these. Th- I just don't think that's the time we live in. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the times we live in. I mean, I'm thinking about you know what other parts of the practice could be transparent. So if it's a folder, that's actually not the whole story, right? I'm reminded that. Um, some artists, one of my favorite artists, Chris Burden, would reveal more about their studio practice than was comfortable, right? So, like, <laughs> even though the studio practice, like we've been describing, is like you're you're coming to the studio, it's a mess, but there's still stuff that's hidden. Like someone's cleaned up a few things, and I don't know. Chris Burden did this really cool thing where he he made his tax returns visible, mm. which I always really liked, and he put them on cable uh, television as advertisements. So it'd and be how, like, how were his tax returns? He was, was he making, making more or less money than you thought. Making very little money. <laughs> it's like, well, and and that's true. You know, in general, um, you always assume that these esteemed artists have. Uh, so the studio visit with a student, you're expecting them to talk. You know that they're in a desperate situation, or or they're in a, a coddled situation, but they know they have the fear of eventually it's going to be gone. But then visiting an artist, a more as you get along more and more mature artists, like you can either visit, and I think we've talked about it before, the artist studio where it's like they're basically running a design agency, right? And you're you're mm-hmm. visiting you're visiting like uh, 
you know, that the, the, the place where they couldn't put stuff up on the walls because the tape would damage the walls, right? <laughs> you're, vid- you're visiting like, uh, you know, like Damien Hirst's like um, lab, basically, or Jeff Koons's factory or something. Yeah. Or you're visiting, and this happened to me while I was in school, um, an artist who is potentially a performer or a conceptual artist um, who was not sort of market driven. So it wasn't like some people were coming to their studio to buy things off the wall. <laughs> They were operating uh, like Chris Burden as performers. And so their studios, when you visited them, were more likely, uh, you were more likely to get a story about, um, well, I don't know, maybe I should just tell the story that I'm thinking of, but which is a bit sensitive. But when I was in grad school, uh, of visiting artists would come to town and I would beg to have studio visits with them. But when you were begging to have studio visits with them, you were also looking, you were craving perspective on that artist's life, right? You wanted to know, like, what is it like out there in the real world, right? <laughs> like, how do you survive? What are you doing, right? And there would come a point where either they would, like, confirm your fantasies, like, it's amazing, but there would also, every once in a while, be a, uh, an artist that would come along and say, like, look, I'm having a really hard time. Can you lend me some money, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was, like, shocking and and um, yeah, really difficult to experience. Well, I, I think it's quite often that the most, uh, the most, I, I don't like that word so much, but the most avant-garde artists or the most cutting edge or pushing the boundaries are probably really well known in schools because that that's the thing you want to teach students yeah. that are prepared for the future. But that kind of future thinking usually doesn't make a lot of money. And so it there's a lot of painters who are doing stuff that, kind of looks 20 years old mm-hmm. and uh, it could have been made in the 80s and and that's the stuff that people really love to uh, well yeah i'm just reminded that like open studios <clears throat> exist at like some of these universities like so that this was in oregon but at yale you know the the legend is that like they have open studios and everything gets bought <laughs> during those studios oh, right yeah, like yeah, yeah. and same thing where my uh my partner Kristen went to school in London at the Slade, like celebrities show up to the open studios and buy all the work right off the well, wall. Then it starts to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. I get what this studio visit is all about. It's about getting early access. Like it's like your pre-order for a Tesla kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, the artists with a performance practice, there's no pre-order going on. Maybe there's a commission. Um, the artist in question that really sort of surprised me uh, when I was in school was Carolee Schneeman. She visited, and she's, um, for those that don't know, seminal feminist performance artist. Uh, kind of, like, you know, broke new ground uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, with performances that are, like you said, taught in schools, like, as, like, this is seminal work. And then I remember meeting her, and she couldn't afford rent, and she was like trying to figure out, you know, how to pay the utility bill. And uh, I, I was talking to a friend, and she he had the same experience with her, where they're together. He was visiting her in a hotel room uh, for a studio visit, uh, like an interview or something. And she was she was on the phone when he came in, like desperately sort of pleading um, with the power company not to turn their bill off. And now, Carolee Schneeman, I, I feel like I can safely say this because in the last couple of years. She's really been re-recognized with survey exhibitions. and But she still might not make money off of that. Well, I, yeah. I mean, if you're listening, Carolee, my heart goes out to you. Because because, because if, if the, I mean, the, most of the money is made in the secondary market. So if her seminal pieces from that period go up in price, she doesn't benefit from it. And then she might get a fee for doing an exhibition and that might be okay for a year, but it's not a ongoing cash flow. Yeah, I mean, the reality is a lot of her works, like, you know, don't couldn't be collected. Like, you, a scroll that comes out of your vagina is not like, you know, that's a performance. It's not like something you can own. Though, of course, she had films. You can own like the that. scroll. <laughs> you, can own, you can own the vagina scroll. Yeah. yeah, I guess you could own that as like a, an artifact or something. Um, yeah. But, you, you know, you're right that in, in, maybe those things have already been purchased, too. Like, if imagine if you were a famous artist 40 years ago. Like, you're not more famous 40 years later for the works. You Like, the works don't go up in value if you've already sold them, right? You're right. They're in the yeah. secondary market. Yeah, um, money is slowly creeping into the conversation, which I apologize. is a topic for another podcast. It, it but is, but it, the, part, of the, part of the studio visit I just wanted to describe is like... Yeah, you know, it is It is part of that. Yeah, it's part of like seeing what can I, what can I buy kind of thing. Um, well, it's also it, it, you're building an audience. So this idea that... Uh, um, 
what's this this premise of 1000 true fans and then they'll sustain you your whole life and mm-hmm. sometimes you put out a book and sometimes you put out a painting and some but if you have a hundred or a thousand true fans then you'll be okay and so the studio and definitely the studio while you're studying can be the first gateway to that yeah and i think like studio visits among we haven't talked about artists working with technology have had a little bit of a resurgence because um if you're working with a lot of tech and like custom tech typically it's like quite a lot to set it up and take it down so i've done quite a few studio visits with people who have like these technical practices where it only really works once in the studio (laughs) like they got it working in the studio and then like it might exist it might never exist outside the studio right like these technical experiments and so you can see them in documentation but if you want to really experience them uh, yeah i i thought for a while to make custom led screens with you know the LED where you can see the dots. Yeah, not not an OLED panel, but the, and I went to a workshop in Brooklyn where they made all these experiments with hardware, and they showed me they would get panels from China and they did the soldering and they would change the graphics cards and they would build custom software and mm-hmm. they they could sort of make LED sculptures with moving images on them and and I was just there and I just saw a path of my life where. I would be in that workshop fixing stuff and I would be in institutions and collectors' homes with a soldering iron trying to make it work. <laughs> and I just thought, no, this is... this. That's exactly how it works, though. Th- th- there was a fork in, in my yeah. life of the road going in two directions. And one was hardware plus software <laughs> and the other one was software only and living at the beach. And I said, I'll, t- I'll take the software. Yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, artists I know that make kind of stuff that with custom electronics, they have to have uh, like a maintenance guy, if it's not yeah. themselves, that goes around to collectors' Well, Rafael Lozano Hemmer, yeah. uh, he lives in Canada, a Mexican artist. I, I was in a panel together with him, so he spoke about, he has a whole team. He has a really, it's, it's a good example of a media artist who works with technology, but definitely has the studio. Mm-hmm. And he has a big studio with 10, 14 people. And he has a maintenance crew, and collectors can call the maintenance crew, fly them out at the cost of the collector, and then pay a daily fee of uh, I don't know what, and they'll come and repair it. So he, it, it's basically like the Geek Squad or right. uh, the Apple Genius Bar, but for his practice. Um, yeah, but the, I mean, uh, yeah, that's right. That's a nightmare for me as well. I definitely <laughs> don't, do not want to, to have to think about that and there I guess there are whole careers <laughs> it'd be and funny if you have to come back to fix the performance <laughs> <laughs> or your yeah team. like it would just I mean because there's this elation after you have an exhibition of being finished and walking away from the work but then uh, imagine as your career went on you would just have this accumulation of like babies that you had to take care yeah. of like it, it is interesting there's different artists who have this extended studio so that their work is instruction based if you think of mm. uh, Solowit Solo or, yeah. or Tino Segal and he just has they both had collaborators they like to work with mm-hmm. maybe people moment, don't know who uh, Tino Segal and, and Solowit yeah. are okay well Solowit is a conceptual artist whose work is very visual so I don't even know if it's pure conceptual but he he, he made all kinds of works but it's all based around geometric uh, instructions so he'll say like make a line that connects every item in the room and then you yeah. start doing that and then there's lines all over the room um, but he, does, he yeah. it wasn't it, he would send the instruction but not anyone could do the instruction he had trusted people he worked with to execute right. it so he had a network of people all over the world that still today train other people so yeah I had, a fr- I had a friend who was made I had a friend who was done tra- properly yeah I had it, a friend who was who was who was like trained um, but by the way they had like terrible labor practices so he had to quit he had to quit oh. the team uh, because it was like they were like well not- the economics are so hard yeah yeah, yeah sorry I, I just got to slip that in there like, hey no, 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 it's fine to clean up your act <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah come back to life and clean it up <laughs> yeah exactly oh. and then Tina Segal, and I'm sure there's a lot of performance artists who don't perform the, perform themselves, mm-hmm. but they work with teams of performers, and then maybe they instruct key people who then instruct other people, and then it becomes a bit like a theater director who instructs a dance group. Well, yeah, it's funny too because I was reading, uh, I'm reading this book right now called The E Myth. It's like a 1990s book, but it's a, the myth of the entrepreneur. 
Um, and really, it's it's kind of funny. It's a good, it's an interesting book to read. I think for artists, it's not it's not written for artists. I read a lot of books not written for artists, like a lot of business books that people ca- like discount as cheesy. But in them, mm-hmm. sometimes you'll find like really. Oh, they're wonderful. I think yeah. everybody reads them and nobody admits it. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. I mean, I think that I'm making a lot of people cringe on the other end of the the mic here. But um, basically, in this Emith book, he it, talks it's about those kind of books where you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say out loud, "I want to win today," <laughs> and then say it fifteen times. Yeah, but a lot of times it's like something you know is true, but you fail to admit to yourself, right? So yeah. I like it for that because it usually just reaffirms like a feeling you have in your gut already, right? So in this case, it's like he talks about, you know, most people, uh, there are two kinds of, well, really three, there's a spectrum of three types of people that, uh, but most businesses fail, right? And if we think of the studio as a business, it's interesting to think about, but 80% of businesses in the United States fail in the first four years, five years. And, f- and failing means they, they close. They just close, they close, right? Mm-hmm. And then of those that survive, in the next two to four years, another 80% close. And so within 10 years, about 10% of businesses are still alive. Now, at first, this like reminded me immediately of artists graduating <laughs> graduating art school. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you go to art school, you're like so excited, you have all the ambition in the world, but then like, you know, you leave and your friends slowly drop off. Right? Like they slowly like, they, they change path. They're like, whoa, this isn't what I expected. What? You want me to do that for free? And then you want to kick me in the balls? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, but like eventually you end up with like the same statistic, I think, about one in 10 of the people that I went to school with. This, I'm 10 years on now. That's why I'm looking back on it. I was thinking it's been 10 years since I graduated my MFA. How many of the people that I went to school with are still making art? And it might be a little bit more than 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 ten uh, percent of the people I went to grad school with, but undergrad, there's may there's yeah, but one the, other the, person. The, there's certain, and I wouldn't call that failing. There's a lot of schools and uh, where you learn about maybe you'll study your major psychology or philosophy, sure. and those people end up being great managers, but they didn't study business or management. And I think a lot of artists end up in in real estate or interior design or education or all kinds of things, and they've just developed a way of thinking that then yeah, and I'm is not really useful it. in a lot of uh, areas. So by the way, I would consider myself one of the eighty percent that didn't <laughs> survive or found another way to survive. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's like because because my art practice does not is not self sustaining. Right. I yeah. think that's the definition. Right. And so it really is probably 10% of people that are completely self-sustained on art. But it was interesting in this book. I think it's less. There's, there's no way there's 10%. Well, then it's even worse, Raphael. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's even worse. And then, and so what was inter- well, interesting in this book is they describe two kinds of roles. So when you start out, you're, any business owner is kind of a technician. And what they say is like, usually you're in a job, you're really good at something, right? Like, Say you're you're working at an advertising agency, you're fantastic at Photoshop, and you're like, fuck this boss, you know, like they can't tell me what it what it's like. I'm gonna go open my own studio. I'm gonna call it like we have Photoshop. But that's a yeah. that, that's a real I'll keep uh, the margins. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're gonna start making the Photoshop mock-ups for hire. And I'm gonna make fifty dollars an hour. I'm gonna show them. And so you do that, and what happens is you start it and you're really good at it. And a lot of people come to you and they're like, Hey, can you make more Photoshop mock-ups for us? And then suddenly uh, you have so much business, and you're and you, you but you're not you're you're you don't have time to do it all, and not only that, you have all these other things that you're not good at that you're asked to do. Like you have to manage your books, or you have to like pay you the rent, and you get sued. Yeah, like there's all these weird things that come up, and it's like, but the work keeps you know coming in, and you and you can't manage good work from bad work, and eventually you kind of like you give up. You're like, this is not this is not what I signed up for. I wanted to make Photoshop stuff, I, I, mocks. I'm, I love that, or like, I love making wood ducks. I wanna make wood ducks all night long. Yeah, I don't, don't wanna, wanna go to the post office and yeah. return is Yeah, exactly. Up. I don't wanna deal with all this postage stuff or this business. And it turns out that that ends up actually being the majority, about 80% of the time is not the thing you thought mm. you'd be doing. And this is true because uh, I work with like small business owners. I know this from my day job. Uh, but then like some people figure this out and they hire someone, right? Now think of the artist studio the same way, right? Like some yeah. of us eventually hire, what do we call them? Like an artist assistant yeah. to handle yeah. what, what, do they, and what do they handle first, right? 
Well, yeah, that, that's funny. They usually it's, handle it's emails good. and stuff, right? No, exactly. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I spoke to an artist, a sculptor, and he he was a classic studio. Like the the stuff happens in the studio. It's mm-hmm. very physical work. He he uses chemical processes to let accidents happen and and uh, growth things materials start to grow on each other and do weird things. And so it was going well. So he had a huge studio, which was quite expensive, but let's go for it, right? Yeah. And then he had six to ten assistants, and he would have to instruct them to do the work that he wanted to do. And he's upstairs in this little office figuring out the cash flow because (laughs) the money coming in was not as much as he expected, and he has all these assistants. And then he has to come up with tasks to keep them busy. Yeah. And he's terrible at managing because he's not a man. He's an artist. So... Yeah, that's that's the next. Uh, what you were saying, how how businesses feel, you you have to expand because the demand is high. Yeah, and basically, what this you know book sort of proposes is that like a lot of people don't do well in this next phase where they hire someone else because they get them to do the wrong thing. They get them to do all yeah. the administration and stuff, and meanwhile they continue just doing what they love. But they ignore that person as that person's doing all the strategy. And like bookkeeping and everything <laughs> and knows how well the business is doing. They're just like still making their ducks or their Photoshop mock-ups or whatever. I don't know how I got these examples. They're paintings. And so what's really required is to get to this like entrepreneur level. But maybe like as I say this, like I don't want this, but it's for you to stop making the doing the thing you love. <laughs> so like yeah. stop making paintings and start like strategizing, start doing the books, start taking care of the business. Start taking care of your yeah, clients. It, it, it reminds me of this this book, the Four Hour Work Week, and then oh yeah, I think Tim it Ferriss, starts right. With, yeah, and it, it, it it's uh, it's cheesy, but there's a lot of truth in it. Also, and it starts with this book where there's a fisherman in Mexico in a small town, and he's mm-hmm. fishing, and then an American comes up to him. He's like, "You should get a bigger boat so you can catch more fish, and then you should have some <laughs> assistance, yeah. and then you should have a bigger boat, and then you should incorporate." And then you should make all this money. So then later on, you can retire and have a little boat and uh, hang out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, uh, it's just so, it seems so futile. And it was really interesting uh, in the studio visits this week because all of the artists that I visited with, I eventually saw a theme among all of them. And I remarked on this theme. And when I remarked on it, I was with some faculty. And they were stunned at this realization because they're like, how did you nail it so well? A little but, truth in your face. <laughs> a little truth in my face. But what I said was like, I, so by the way, I loved all the work. I thought it was like really inspiring, exciting. But all of it embedded in it was a sort of pathos or futility. Like there was a certain like... Um, like the times we live in. Yeah, it was the times we live in. But I think it's also the state of mind as, you know, that artists have as young artists right now of being, you know, unprepared or unknowing about like a future that might, you know, in all kinds of ways that that is sort of like, I don't know, dissolving, uh, but also appearing. It's like a like a, a mirage, and it, it it doesn't really seem real, quite real yet. I don't know. I don't know if it's a student thing, and that's what I was thinking about. Is this the, or is this an Oregon thing? But in all of the works, the aesthetics of failure were embedded in in, in the works, and of course, a few years ago there was that big exhibition at the new museum, the un- unmonumental one. It's quite a few years ago now, like over 10 years ago, where sculpture became about trash bags <laughs> and like, you know, like piles of garbage and things like that, right? Where it had once been this like, you know, marble and strength, you know, but art today is better summarized as a stack of cardboard uh, in an alleyway or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that goes back to the this idea of the messy studio and, and uh, it does something is I, I always like this idea of the studio of Rene Magritte, the surrealist painter mm-hmm. and uh, he just wanted to be as far away of the idea of an artist as possible, so he would dress in a suit, so he would kind of live in a very suburban bland neighborhood in Brussels. He didn't like to travel. He lived in Paris for a while, but he didn't like hanging out with other artists. Mm-hmm. So he set up, it was just a family house that him and his wife were living there. And he would paint in the morning and the afternoon. But come lunchtime, he would put his painting in a cupboard and then pull the dining table out. They would have mm-hmm. lunch. And then, but everything was just as residential as possible. There were no paint splats anywhere. He oh, would nice. paint in a suit. And just... This was all a mindset, and he painted as commercially as possible, like a like a commercial artist. So it mm-hmm. was 
as least artistic as possible. So his whole <laughs> life was, the mind would be as crazy as possible, but everything around it was very mm-hmm. orderly and, and, and bland and uh, yeah, I take it you're a fan of this. Uh, you've modeled a little bit of your own life after this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, but I, I, I really he, at the time it, this word didn't come up yet. But the bohemian artist that was uh, the big thing. Like yeah. you'd be drunk all the time and trash everywhere, and that was a, then you're a real artist. Then you're far away from society. And right, cut your ear off. You know, just like yeah, fuck it. yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I still think uh, I see this a lot in branded videos that uh, th- they like to be connected with art so they and they all want to be in the studio and then mm. see see a mess with a lot of colors and yeah like, oh this is so creative they always have those workshops for like business people where it's like they fill balloons with paint and it's like now we're gonna be jackson pollock <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah and so, and so this idea that creativity is uh making a mess yeah yeah exactly that's the, that's the big and making a mess can be interesting, but it's almost the default of what does creativity if if you if you close your eyes here's an exercise for our listeners. think of a room that feels <laughs> very creative. It's so corny, but what what comes to mind what I'm serious, just close your eyes and think right, of I'm creative. closing my eyes too bro. I'm, what's I'm a room where where you would be very creative? Oh Siri just popped up <laughs> okay, so what does that room look like, Jeremy? Uh, it's weird. My room was a uh, like a psychiatric ward. <laughs> it was all white. <laughs> it was like padded walls, like so I could just like run run into the walls, lie on the ground. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty sad. I just thought I, I thought of an airport lounge. Because <laughs> when I travel, I always come up with ideas. But no. I have to say, my desk. You know, a lot of people say like uh, the messy studio, the messy desk. They're kind of synonymous, but it, they're supposed to be like it's the mind you know externalized right so it's like you know your mind is mess if your mind is creative then it's a mess too is the idea like and creative minds have this like ability this has been proven i suppose to like do more connections between things but the idea of there's a mess it's like oh you can see the connection look it's like the kleenex is sitting next to the the phone the the other end of the spectrum would be like if and this is an idea of meditation that if you clear your mind mm-hmm. then you're open to your subconscious and so when your mind is cluttered with all kinds of uh, yeah. responsibilities it's like oh I have to take out the trash I have to do my taxes there's all these to-do lists yeah they will block your inner uh, desires for ideas that's and that's so maybe true. the the messy desk would then also yeah it it all depends on the I person. think it's the personality type but the equivalent I think when you're just like for a non-artist or uh, when I'm looking at people in the world it's not even their desk it'll be like if, if I see their laptop and I see the browser and it's how many tabs like, they have open in their browser. 400 tabs. <laughs> yeah, and when I can no longer see the uh, favicons on the tabs, then I know that this person has a problem, right? Like, <laughs> they have too many balls in the air. <laughs> or if they've collapsed multiple windows with hundreds of tabs. <laughs> I think the worst is when they have uh, tons of to-do products. And they, they have oh, yeah. Evernote, and they have Notes, <laughs> and they have Simple Note, and they have yeah. a Word document, and they have a Google document, and a spreadsheet, and there's lists of lists of lists of lists, and then there's a list of like, oh, I have to manage my to-do lists. Yeah, to-dos are like, I wonder if the to-do list actually is the artist studio now. I use a, a to, one to-do list for me, product. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. It, it definitely, for me, the Google spreadsheet is my studio. Right, and for me, it's like Trello. I use this product called Trello, which is popular in tech, but then became like common elsewhere. But it allows you to have like cards and to move them around in piles yeah, like a desk. Yeah. yeah, like I have a spreadsheet with ideas and one of the tabs is domain names and the other one oh, is yeah. titles for shows. Yeah. And the other one is uh, objects to draw. And yeah, yeah, because it's, mean, one, it's one thing to have all of the things you've done. That's like the, the studio as an archaeology. That's the database. But, yeah, that's yeah. the database. But it's all the things that you're going to do also represents the studio, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love spreadsheets. I hate spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> the, this is the Good Boy Podcast with lover yeah. and hater of spreadsheets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, imaginary studio. Yeah, but uh, I, I often think... I think that's often for artists, you have a good year. Mm -hmm. And so you start making some money and it's better to spend the money on your practice because then you're not paying taxes. 
Right. Um, yeah. And that's something, um, it's tax season right now, but uh, one thing maybe people don't consider, I don't know, should I offer some tax advice? Of course. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I know most artists are allergic to is like borrowing money or like spending money. The best policy is not to spend money, right? Um, but if you're spending money on your practice, you can pretty much write it off on your taxes if you have a good accountant. Um, yeah, but you it's can funny get money be- back. because, because you, most artists start with, very little money. So they become mm-hmm. good at managing, finding a way with little money. And then money comes in and then it's like, okay, do I spend this on an assistant, a bigger space? And all those things are recurring costs. So yeah. you start spending on things that require you to keep that level of income going or even growing. Right. And uh, so I always found that very dangerous to commit to these monthly expenses. So I thought about it a lot like, okay, I should professionalize and get a studio. Mm-hmm. But then the thing, if I get a studio in my neighborhood for 2000 a month, it's still a tiny space, so that's right. a lot of money. Then I could go to Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx, but then I know I'll just never go because I'm not really making it. So I'll have a showroom that I'll go to three times a year. Mm-hmm. So I end up always just, ah, never mind, I'll do it next year. Yeah. That's always my... Yeah, but I think um, one of the things that my parents taught me as small business owners growing up was that um, if you're if you have a business, and this is kind of interesting in relationship to the studio, is like it should operate at a loss. You should never have a business that makes oh, money. Okay. And the reason you don't want to make money, this is going to like sound horrible to our moral, like artist listeners, is mm-hmm. because you don't want to pay taxes, right? Yeah. And yeah. as an artist, I I almost think it's your right not to pay taxes, especially when grants funding is being cut back, right? So well, and and if you make art that's available for free. Yeah, exactly. You're ma- you're 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 providing a cultural subsidy to the world. So that's my position. You can have a different position. Like, hey, but do do you take that position that because you you sustain your own life with your day job, and then any income of art goes back into art? Yeah, basically, I run my art as a losing business, like a, a business that loses money every year, and that brings that brings my taxes down, which provides a subsidy uh, to me in some ways to continue to sustain my art practice. But then, let's say. You, you had a good year with a bunch of performances and commissions and all of a sudden you have this stack of cash and then you have to come up with something to invest in. But what do you buy then? Well, you should always put that into your retirement, which no artist <laughs> ever does. No, but in, in your yeah. case, when do you then start... Uh, buying machines you didn't really need uh right yeah like i bought a computer a macbook pro which i've talked about on this podcast before and you mm-hmm. can am- in canada anyway over three years you can amortize that loss that, yeah that yeah. fixed cost so but you that, don't I, I, it's uh, actually uh, free the laptop at the end of three years right so yeah, yeah. um people don't really but look at it that way for some reason it hasn't been that all of a sudden you're like oh i gotta spend fifty thousand this year on something mm, no i mean i've never done well here's I'll be, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be as transparent as possible because I have a day job and I've, I've received raises or bonuses in that life. It has been, yeah, that I've had to put money aside and I, I put that money towards savings to buy a home, which I did last year. Is that also the incubator? Was that kind of an idea? Yeah. So the incubator eventually for me was going to be a whole like tax, uh, not evasion model, but basically, no, no. like no, the idea. This is, uh, you, you can talk about, it, but this is a way that the government would encourage the economy to yeah. to move because you're spending it back into people. Yeah, what I would like to do, what I you know, one of my long term plans is to build a fund. Yeah, of any excess income that I make from all of my various like activities that I can use to fund other artists. So if I figure out the finances, then at least I can give that to other artists. But you um, never considered. Uh, because we're talking about the artist studio, you never considered having a physical space that that would be the way the incubator works, that there is a space in Toronto that's oh, like a, that's anyone interesting. can hang out and you can you can practice your performances and your dance moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's a great idea, Raph. I didn't even think of that because then I could probably, you know, write down that whole... <laughs> you just You just revolutionized my business. Yeah, oh, because that, that whole building yeah. could be written down against yeah. that, that as a loss. Yeah. And you could rent it out for events and things like that if you need the money. I, yeah, like, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, why doesn't this happen more often? Because you have these organizations that sort of charge people to use space. Uh, but if an individual is wealthy enough, and there are a few examples of this, I think, if we think really hard, if an individual is wealthy enough, they can form a foundation that could theoretically offer it for free. But the, the, the thing that's interesting to me is that um, 
for your work for performance and the way you work, you work fine at home and you're probably more comfortable than like some space a little bit further away. Mm-hmm. And so you start, let's say hypothetically, you start making enough money to have a nice lofty, uh, edgy space somewhere in Toronto, but half an hour drive. Right. Then you're spending a lot of time maintaining that space. And so you've, you've made money that actually made your life more difficult then. Mm-hmm. Your performances still happen around the world, have nothing to do with that space, and then, then yeah. you become a manager of the space, and yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it takes away from your focus. Or, yeah, no, but it's exactly like we were talking about from technician to entrepreneur, right? So yeah. if you want to be a technician, I, I think that's totally fine, and, and people should, you know, but it's going to be a struggle no matter what, right? Unfortunately, the whenever, way... Whenever people say that's totally fine, it means it's not fine. <laughs> Well, I think it exists. I think it's fine because it exists for the first like 20 years of your life as like um, or the first like, you know, conscious 20 years of your life as like the mo- the thing that brings you the most joy. Right. And so, yeah, ha- I don't know, at least I'm tra- I'm starting to get to the point. This is a personal crisis where I have to recognize. And I think you're ahead of me on this. This like, episode is about to get really real <laughs> where you have to reconcile that. Oh, OK, maybe my value is not the thing that I make, right? It's it's sort of the ideas or you know, which you've heard before, right? Like the concepts mm-hmm. and it's how I treat other people, right? Like and how, you know, the team that I build and you could you can help others get ahead and they're going to progress through this as well. And so that's kind of where I, my head's starting to go is like, you know, it's it's a little bit selfish of me to still want to be the technician to still be the no. you know, a little bit. It's a little bit selfish. No. Yeah. No. I don't agree. I think if you, uh, it, let's say that you're a really good, uh, you can, you're great at making soup. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves your soup. And then you could work in a kitchen, but you could start your own restaurant and start franchising it and et cetera, et cetera. But then you're not making the soup anymore. And if you make it, the soup is better. Even if you could teach a lot of people. Yep. Capitalism still, won't make, allow that. <laughs> but, but when you make the soup, it's still better. Soup's got, yeah, but you're gonna you're gonna kill yourself making soup that way because like everyone's gonna want soup and you. Well, can't. that's that weird weird growth myth that is embedded <laughs> yeah. in us so deeply. But it's yeah, like, yeah. no, if you still just make soup for four people, maybe it's fine. It doesn't have to be for four hundred million people. Well, the problem is if you make soup for four people, it's not you can only eat soup for the rest of your life because you're not gonna make enough soup to sell to make to buy non soup related. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of art with soup. Huh? There's like a, a, a relational aesthetics sort of soup things where they invite collectors to have soup together, and that's the work. I think it's cause soup is like uh, the least uh, amount. Like it's the first thing. If you have nothing, you can make soup, right? You can like yeah, boil yeah. some water Just and throw some weeds. Put in. some ketchup in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is really capitalist to think this way. The way I'm thinking. Uh, because it requires that you take some of the excess labor, like you, if you hire other people, that you make some money. You know, you hire them for four hours, but they work for five, right? So you get yeah. that one extra hour for yourself. That's what capitalism is based on in a sort of Marxist sense of the word. So, yeah, it requires that at some point. But you have to like you reconcile. You're like, it's okay because I'm teaching this person a new skill or something like that. Right? That's like how you do the the moral math. Yeah. Um, but it does remind me, like, I know we have to finish up here, but in Japan, seemingly, you can have a studio, so to speak, as a craftsperson. Like, this is the myth of Japan, and you know a bit about Japan, so I'm asking you. Where it's like, I might decide to be like a blade maker, like I'm going to make knives the rest of my life. And so I'm going to like go study, as I'm an apprentice with someone. Well, it, it, I, it, 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 I don't know firsthand uh, these craftspeople, but I do know with food that every region in japan there's, uh, there's so many little restaurants and every one of them says they're the best in the world Ooh. and they're all so proud of what they do and and they're not franchising they're not teaching other people to do it yeah you go to that place and it's the season for new rice and they have the best greens and they say and everybody in that town is convinced that that's the best rice in japan and you mm-hmm. go to another town like oh no no that, that one is totally crap this is the best one and yeah. so there's definitely a thing there that they prefer non-franchise restaurants but it you know it like um 
yeah, but I guess like, I, yeah. Th- there was a comment, someone commented that I cut you off too much in this podcast. So you were in the middle of something, but no, the, you but were talking I, about the blade maker. And yeah, the, the blade maker, because the, the apprenticeship, the craft. Uh, yeah. And when I was in Germany last week or the week before, um, I met this kind of guy at a restaurant. I was at a traditional like kind of beer hall that you heard in the last podcast at the end of the mm-hmm. podcast. The singer? Yeah, and this weird guy came in. That wasn't the guy. This other guy came in, like dressed in this like really traditional outfit and he had like a like a staff made of wood and he was walk, you know walking around asking for money and I was like who's this guy and he was like um he's like I think he's called an off der waltz off have you ever heard this term off der waltz no auf der waltz <laughs> a u f d e r w a l z or z if you're american um and basically what he does is he's an apprentice like a carpenter and for the for, while you're training to be a carpenter, which can be up to ten years in Germany, which is ridiculous, like being in school, you're not no, allowed. That's not ridiculous. That's good. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, it's, but so, but it, what's ridiculous is during that time you're not allowed to earn an income. You're only allowed to work for your apprentice. You're an apprentice to your master, so you're only allowed to work for your master during this time. Yeah, and so, but the, the, but the they apprenticeship this, starts at age fourteen or something. Yeah. This guy was seemingly like sixty, but yeah, yeah, I've heard the same thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. but that allows you to go to the to restaurants and ask for money, and they have to let you in. And then people give you money. And I gave this guy, I thought I gave him ten euro because I was so excited about this idea. Because I thought, what if artists operated this way? Um, instead, I gave him twenty euro by accident. I was just well. So there great. wasn't a, a big apprentice system for artists. Uh, no, I know exactly. But yeah. what happened to it? So right, right now, what, what could happen is like any artist who's working for another artist. Here's what I propose: that they are allowed to like go into restaurants <laughs> and say, "Hello, I am an artist. I am sacrificing myself on behalf of the culture and practice of art making. Would you please donate to my cause?" Right. But that takes away from your studio time. Yeah, maybe also yeah. that's what Kickstarter is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all coming full circle now. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> anyway, I have another... I, I, I mean, I, I don't have very much more to talk about on this topic, but we do have to kind of wrap sure it up. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken it all, all kinds of places selfishly today. Um, but I did, I did... I think there's a good audio recording that we could segue into, if you'll let me uh, suggest yeah. one. Which one is it this week? So we got uh, a, a couple weeks ago. We got. Uh, um, I was, you know, just thinking that we were doing. I was doing these studio visits. I was at a school, and a few weeks ago, uh, a guy named Bryce Wilner sent in um, some audio from his university, which is legendary for its studio visits. Uh, but he sent in a recording from Yale University, where he studies. Um, but it's from the reading room at the Sterling Memorial Library, and I thought that that. Being at Yale, Yale has this sort of legendary place uh, for studio, uh, like in the history of, of studio visits, I think Yale really stands up there as a school for studio visits. Um, and that it would be fun for us to hear. Now, this is not a studio, <laughs> this, <laughs> but, but in contrast to what we've been talking about, right? Like a library in a lot of ways um, is a kind of studio. It's the sound of thought. Yeah, it's the sound of it's thinking. It's the sound of thinking, yeah. Yeah, which was what we've been talking about is the contemporary kind of studio is really more about thinking and cataloging it's a spreadsheet the spreadsheet of the mind but that's what a library is so spreadsheet of ideas in physical form is a library and i thought it would be interesting yeah. uh, to listen to that so thank you for it uh, we've been getting a lot of great recordings so thank you everybody they've just been amazing and there's like some hilarious ones that'll you know like we got a dishwasher this week that <laughs> i want to play later uh it's just like some of them are just like i don't know they're like symphonies of, of ambient of ambient sound they're, yeah. they're wonderful um, so thank you everybody for listening and then now we'll listen to the sound of the library at Yale. Yeah, thanks. Have a okay. good day. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>